So we have the privilege of studying Shantideva and uh, and preparing for the class. You know, I was reading some of the verses that are that are coming, and uh, some of them are my favorite verses in the whole book. They aren't the ones we'll start with today, but as we go on, uh, and some of the verses that have really. Um, made a very strong impact on me. So it'll be very nice to share those with you. So let's remember that we are working for the benefit of sentient beings and trying to attain full awakening to do that. And that in the process of creating the causes uh, to become a fully awakened Buddha, and also, after we've attained that result, the mental factor of integrity and the mental factor of consideration for others are both extremely important, as is conscientiousness. And all three of those mental factors involve uh, honesty, telling the truth, to ourselves, telling the truth to others, not whitewashing, not blaming, not avoiding, but having a very truthful mind that's not harsh, but compassionate, but doesn't make excuses. <laughs> and let ourselves fall into all sorts of manipulating tricks. So it's very important to, to see those three mental factors as essential if we want to create the causes for Buddhahood. Because it's one thing to have compassion, but to act out of compassion, we have to be truthful. We have to have integrity, conscientiousness, consideration for others. And to hold those as very strong uh, values in our mind. So ponder that for a moment, and then we'll start the class. So, um, before I get into the questions, I thought I'd share um, 
something of what I've been thinking the last week. Uh, so we had our uh, bi-monthly um, posada a few, some days ago. We have it every uh, fortnight, and in it, the sangha, we uh, reveal our misdeeds, our transgressions, and have regret for them. And uh, then we um, read our precepts together as a way of restoring them. So when we were doing the last posada, I was thinking of the difference between a sangha community and a political party. Because <laughs> they're both groups, you know, and as sentient beings in our lives, we belong to many different kind of groups. And some groups we choose and some groups we don't. We're born into them. But how we relate to them is up to us. And so I was thinking of the similarities between a Sangha community and a political party. You know, they're both groups. They're both established to accomplish a, a purpose. They both have uh, ways of um, entering that group. Not everybody can just walk in. You have to have do certain things to become a member of that group. Um, you take a certain oath or a certain vow as a member of that group. Okay. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of similar. But then uh, a political, well, a Sangha community is set up uh, to help its members attain liberation and awakening and to sustain the Dharma in the world and enable other living beings to come in contact with these teachings. A political party, supposedly the purpose is to legislate and govern the country. Okay, now the Sangha, both, both of these have purposes. Then we're all sentient beings, which means that we all have afflictions. So then you have to see how good does, how well does each group we belong to fulfill its purpose? And, you know, are there ways in which uh, individuals in the group get sidetracked or ways in which the entire group gets uh, sidetracked? Okay. So you can see how that can happen in a spiritual community if we don't um, do the posada, for example, if we don't um, point out misbehaviors on the part of ourselves and on the part of the people we live with, if we just sweep things under the table in the, the name of, uh, you know, it's in the name of not causing upset, but the real reason is I want everybody to like me. So I don't want to say anything that might make people not like me. And there's a big difference between, uh, you know, saying something that needs to be said and uh, knowing that the person may not like it, but you're saying it 
because it's something important and you're doing it with a good motivation. And not saying something or saying something, but the motivation is so that people will like me and I'll have a good reputation. The big difference between those two things. Okay? And so we can see, uh, and we can't always tell through the behavior what the motivating factor is. Yeah, it's up to us to look at our own mind and see what it is. And, um, you know, so that's why integrity, truthfulness, and so forth are really important, conscientiousness. But it's easy for us as individuals, you know, to go the way of afflictions. And then it's easy for a group to start covering up each other's faults. You know, so there's certain precepts that we have um, that you create a transgression if you don't point out a fault and if you just, you know, uh, say, yeah, that's okay, we're going to ignore that, okay? Because we're supposed to to help each other in that way. So point out a fault doesn't mean that you go, you did this, it means with the motivation to help somebody, you point something out, okay? So in a political party, um, you know, that isn't so important, admonishing each other, um, but what it's very interesting because it should be because a political party it's even easier for the individuals and for the party as a whole to go astray in terms of fulfill of not fulfilling their purpose yeah so you can you can see it in any group and what is it that makes it this happen Ignorance, anger, attachment, okay? Ambition, craving, okay? Attachment to reputation, attachment to possessions, attachment to social status, all these kinds of things. So this can happen in a spiritual community and in a, in a political party, you know, because you can be in a, in a monastery and you know you want to be the the whoever in the monastery, or you want to get the first placement in the Geshe exams, or you want to sit in the front row with all the important people, uh, you know, during teachings, or you want to you know be cl- uh, have your picture taken with His Holiness. Uh, you know, this can easily happen. Yeah, in a in a political party, same thing. You want your picture taken with whoever is the big boss at that time, and uh, you want to maybe you want to be speaker of this and that, or leader of a of the, uh, you know of the party in the in the Senate, le- leader of the party in the House of Representatives, and you know. So it's the same same mental factors that that can come. So, uh, in, in seeing those similarities, uh, you know, I know none of you are watching the news. So I'm watching it all for you, for your benefit, so that you'll know what's happening, right? But actually, um, I think this is becoming an amazing long meditation. 
Yeah, because um, I will try not to mention names, but one of the political parties is trying to figure out what it is, you know? Um, its leader was not reelected. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, um, thank goodness. And, and, um, and, you know, the party's trying to figure out who it is. So, what's interesting is, uh, it, well, as you know, you know, they've, they're, there's, there's gonna be, they've impeached Trump again. And next week, there is going to be a, the, the trial in the Senate is going to, to occur. And, so the Republicans are trying to figure out, are they following Trump or are they following their conscience? Okay, so uh, there was one vote taken uh, some days ago about whether they thought uh, that impeaching a president who was no longer in power was constitutional or not. There's some dispute about this. Most people say it, it is constitutional. Some say it isn't. Anyway, there was, they had a vote and there were 10 Republicans who said it's, const it's constitutional and we would vote for, uh, you know, for impeachment. And no, I'm sorry. Yeah, they've not just that it's constitutional, but they voted for impeaching him, 10 Republicans. Okay, so you have that. One of the leading Republicans was, was Liz Cheney, yeah? And uh, so there's a whole bunch of Republicans in the, in the uh, House, and they, many of them really turned on her and blasted her. Um, because she voted for impeachment. Yeah, totally blasted her. She's has third in the party command, and she, they wanted to um, strip her of that. Um, one other, one of the dear, dear representatives, I won't mention his name, and uh, one of the children of the dear former president, um, spoke at a rally in her state. They went to her state specifically to hold a rally to badmouth her. Yeah. And she voted according to her conscience. Yeah. So you have that on one side. On the other side, there's um, another uh, representative, Marjorie Taylor Greene, no relationship to me. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, who, um, well, she thought that the um, Parkland shooting and the Sandy Hook shootings did not occur, that those were all actors. There were no children who got killed. That the forest fires in California started because uh, the Jews have a, a laser beam in space that they focused on the forests in California. 
um, that she vo she has things online about uh, you know we should assassinate uh, Democrats. You know how to get rid of them. A bullet through the head is a good means. Um, you know she she is a, a QAnon follower. Okay, and on and on and on. They're discovering so many of the things she said. Anyway, the former president, whose name I'm not mentioning, loves her and thinks she's fantastic because she loves him. And you know, it's very transactional. I pat your back, you pat my back. Okay. So he loves her. He obviously doesn't love Liz Cheney, who voted to impeach him. So the Republican Party, yeah, this week, they were trying to decide whether to take Liz Cheney out of her uh, position as third highest in, in the Republican, you know, uh, representatives, as Republican representatives. Should we take her out? And what do we do? Uh, and what about Marjorie Taylor Greene? Because she got put on two committees, one of which is the Education Committee, perfectly suited for somebody who thinks that there are no school shootings. So what are they, you know? What are they going to do? And so they're trying to figure out who they are as a party. And it's interesting to watch this because. When they talk publicly, well, the, the, the head of the party in, uh, of the Republicans, the leader in the, in the House, he wants, he wants to have it both ways. Okay. He sometimes says things about the ex-president, criticizing him, but he doesn't want to offend him. And he flew to, uh, Florida uh, last weekend to have a tete-a-tete -tete and have his picture taken with the big guy. And so he, he wants to get in good with the side that wants to keep um, Liz Cheney, and he wants to be in good graces with the former president and more than half of the Republicans in the House who are, you know, I don't know how many of them are QAnon people, um, but they're definitely believers in conspiracy theories. You know, as we saw with, you know, everything that's been going on. Okay, I don't have to go over all that. So sitting back and watching this as a Dharma person, yeah, and saying, how does this relate to my mind? Yeah, and you see that, you know, it was like an, until yesterday, we still don't know how this is going to end, but it was like there was so, you know, they don't want to offend the QAnon conspiracy theorist. They don't want to discipline her and take her off of her uh, committees because there's, you know, a big chunk of those people who are for her and the former president loves her. 
Yet, Liz Cheney, who speaks what she really thinks, yeah, and it made her vote a vote of conscience, knowing that she would get criticized, then many of them want to kick her, demote her. Yeah, so it's so interesting. It's like the person who speaks truth wants to get demoted. People want her to be demoted. The person who speaks conspiracy theories, and I mean, she's just way out there. And I don't know if she believes these things or doesn't believe them, but either way, it's bad. If she believes them, then what's her mental state? If she doesn't believe them and she's lying, then what's going on? Anyway, uh, you know, they don't want to, the, the, um, Republican head in the, in the Congress didn't want to discipline her. They had a big Republican meeting and she got a standing ovation during it. Yes. But, you know, McCarthy is his name. He didn't want to discipline her. So he passed it over to the Democrats. Yeah. So the Democrats are going to uh, put something on the floor today about whether to take her off those committees. As soon as the Democrats did that, McCarthy, who gave it to the Democrats to do, the other party to do, said this is a democratic um, partisan activity. He criticized the, the Democrats for doing what he wanted them to do because he was too cowardly to do it. Okay, so you may not have wanted all those details in the middle of retreat, but the reason I told them to you is look at the mental states of the people involved. And what are the motivations? <coughs> yeah. We begin to see that the purpose, well, we know that the purpose of um, the House and the Senate is to govern and to legislate. What we're seeing is no government and no legislation. Yeah, the country's in the middle of the pandemic. The economy is pitting. No, you know, no time for that. But what we see is ambition. Yeah, so that people's purpose becomes being reelected. Yeah, and that then what happens is that all the votes, the basis of the votes is not what is good for the country or even good for their own party. The basis is what helps me as an individual get reelected and climb up the ladder in the political party because McCarthy wants to take back the Congress in the next election. So thinks he needs 
Trump's good graces to do that and Trump's support. And he doesn't want to offend Trump's voters. Because if they take back the, uh, uh, the House, then he will get to be, he hopes to be Speaker of the House. So what you see is you look, you know, somebody joins a club, you know, if we call the the Congress a club. And the purpose of the club is one thing, but people's own purpose is not the purpose of the club. It's their own personal advancement. So where does that leave the Congress? And where does that leave the country? Yeah. Now, if you look at a Sangha community, and the whole world is never going to be the Sangha community. Some people ask me that sometimes. If everybody ordained, then we won't have any babies and the human population will dry out. No, seriously, I get asked that question often. And I say, well, wait until that happens, and then we'll see what to do. (laughs) That's never going to happen, okay? But it's a good thing to worry about if you're bored. Um, (laughs) So, um, yeah. So, you know, to look and see, well... You know, I'm part of a Sangha community. Am I acting with the proper motivation that I should because I voluntarily did this, you know? Or even you're not a Sangha community, part of the Sangha community. You're a lay follower. Still, you know, I'm a Buddhist. I'm a lay follower. I took refuge in the Buddha. I mean, you know, you took some precepts. And... Am, am I acting according to the motivation and according to the, um, you know, in the, in the, in the Congress, they take oaths. We take precepts, you know, or commitments. Uh, am I, you know, working in accordance with the commitment that I made to do? Yeah. To, for myself my own practice, and for the protection of the Sangha and for the advancement of the Dharma. And how much in the community do I play politics, favoring some people who have the same attachments that I do so that we can win when we take a vote about how many potatoes to cook? Dare I tell the story of the retreat? Oh, I'll let you tell that some other time. Your Vajrasattva retreat. Rice no. The, 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 uh, no. Oh, there were many stories from this retreat. Okay, so I'll give you a story. So... We were all at a retreat center. This is a digression from a digression. (laughs) So so we were at this retreat center in Canada 
doing a, th you know, people were doing a three-month Vajrasattva retreat. I was in another do room doing another practice for three months. And there were, I don't know how many people, 12 or something? 13 people. There were, hmm? there were 13 people. But the cooks would bring like 11 or 12 potatoes, you know, baked potatoes. And so then they had to figure out how to split the baked potatoes exactly evenly so that everybody would get it. You would think that they were all the, the eldest children in their families because that's the job of the eldest children, you know. So, and then, so they would take votes on that. Then they took votes on how much milk to have, how much milk everybody could have, okay? I don't know what the decision was, but they voted on it. Most of them were Americans. There were a few Mexicans. The Mexicans on the retreat were going, what are these people doing? You know, just let somebody make the decision and let's get on with things. But no, there were long discussions about how to divide the potatoes and how much milk they were going to have. Okay, so I don't know how I got on that. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. So you, you have to side with the people who have the same attachment to food so that when you vote, you get what you want. You know, and you bow the bad mouth the other people who want to have what you don't like. Yeah. And you vote against them and you gather more people on your side. I've been trying to do that and I've I failed. Everybody here likes beans. Um, <laughs> God, got to get some people here who don't like beans. Um, <laughs> So, um, so what I'm getting at is to look, you know, I mean, I'm looking now at what's happening in the Republican Party. And it's like they've, as, as one person put it, oh, you know who said this? Kellyanne's husband. Yeah, George Conway. So he said they've lost their moral compass. And that's exactly it. They've lost their moral compass. And were you, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you know that's bad for the country when one party loses their moral compass. So the thing is to look at ourselves. And do I speak to the truth? Do I blame? Or do I manipulate? Or do I twist things to my advantage? You know, do I, uh, you know, try and advance myself? Okay. I mean, we, we need to advance our studies and our wisdom and our compassion, but I'm talking about advancing ourselves in terms of status and power and so on. Um, so it's a, a very, very good example to look and, like, I mean... Politically, Liz Cheney and I don't agree on many things, but I admire her because she voted according to her conscience. 
What was interesting is yesterday the Republicans had a, in, in the House, had a vote of whether or not to keep Liz as the third person in, in, in their power structure. And she's been getting blamed a lot. And like I said, you know, people are speaking, some people are speaking more in favor of Marjorie Taylor Greene than of Liz Cheney. They had a secret ballot. Secret ballot. And the vote was 145 to 61 to keep her as in, in the power structure. So when the, they didn't have to let other people know what they were voting, when their reputation didn't depend on their voting, they could they voted according to to their conscience about what they wanted, and they wanted her to, to remain. The vote about Marjorie Taylor Greene, that will probably be a public one because the Democrats are are behind it. And so their people are not going to vote according to, to the truth of their, their own truth. Yeah, they're going to vote according to what's going to advance them. Which is not good for the entire country. And it's not good for the individual. And it's not even good for their political party. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes when you look outside and you you can see these kinds of things so clearly, it's like a mirror for our own behavior. Yeah. And uh, I find that quite helpful. Yeah. Who do, who do I want to be like? Yeah. And uh, there was showing one clip, the, you know, the, I forget how to pronounce her, his name now, Navani, the 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 Russian, you know, who Putin tried to kill, yeah. Who, after he recovered in Germany, went back to Russia, knowing he was going to get arrested, and he did, and they threw him in prison. But I, I didn't see his whole thing, but just a little bit here and there. But he too. You know, when he made a public statement, he spoke very truthfully, very directly, even at the cost of his own personal safety. Yeah. And so what kind of human being do we want to be? Okay. So this is the same thing that Shanti Deva is asking us in Chapter 4. Okay. It's the same thing. Yeah, because chapter four is conscientiousness, ethical conduct. What kind of human being do we want to be? So this is, uh, this is something to, to really think about. You know? And it's not like you just think about it and then put it down, because we can think about what kind of human being we want to be, but becoming that kind of human being is much more difficult, isn't it? Yeah, we all know that. We all know how we would like to be. And when push comes to shove, the eight worldly concerns often topple us. 
Okay? But just the fact of getting clear about what kind of person we want to be, we want to be, helps us go in that direction. Because if we don't take the time to figure that out, then we're going to go this way and that way, and anything anybody says to us, we just go along with it. What do they call that? Spinelessness. Okay. But so at least thinking very deeply about what kind of person do I want to be is a very good and necessary first step. And then after that, saying, okay, what behaviors do I need to change to be like that? And to change those behaviors, what thoughts and emotions do I need to change in order to to be like that? And so really, you know, uh, thinking about that. And, you know, we may know very well what we want to change. But deciding which are the most important things to change first. Because sometimes we say, oh, I want to be this kind of person, so I have to change all these, you know, 853 and a half things. And... Then we try and do them all at once and we wind up doing nothing because we're confused. So pick out, you know, the things that you think are most important for you to start to to practice and abandon now. Yeah, what are the things that, that really take you astray, that harm you or make you harm other people? And really work on those. The other ones you'll get to. Give yourself a break. You're not going to do everything perfectly. Okay. I know this is extremely hard for the high, the members of the high achieving neurotic society. It's, I know it's difficult, but this is the way you have to do it. <laughs> yeah. Because you, you can't do it all at once. We have to do it step by step. Okay. Now, questions. (laughs) Okay. So this is from an earlier chapter. So how is intending to give different from imagining giving when doing a mandala offering? Okay. Um... The intending to give, whether you're doing a mandala offering or, or just, you know, wanting to offer cookies to somebody, um, the intention is what's happening in here. Part of your motive, it's part of your motivation. Okay. Imagining giving in the case of the mandala is you're imagining doing the action. So you have to have both the intention to give and then imagining doing the action. Uh, Similar in life, I may intend to give somebody something, but then actually giving it is, is another step. So whether you're actually giving it or imagining giving it, it's a different mental state than intending to give it. Isn't it? You know, because I could 
intend to give you something and then I just don't follow through. Yeah. If we imagine offering the mandala to the Buddha, okay, it's like we're following through as best we can because we really can't pick up the world and give it to the Buddha because it doesn't all belong to us. Okay? But um, it's a different mental state. When you offer the mandala, it's like, as you know, if, if this... You know, it's as if, okay, all the objects of my attachment uh, I'm going to offer. Yeah. And so imagining just sending the world to the Buddha and he experiences bliss. That's very nice. But we can imagine giving, but are we intending to give to the Buddha? When we offer the mandala, are we really having the intention of offering our body, our wealth, our enjoyments? Or are we just saying that and making the gesture of giving? Or saying that and imagining giving? But we're not really thinking about what does it mean to give my whole world to the Buddha. Yeah. It means I'm giving the people I'm attached to to the Buddha to take care of because they're much better off under the the Buddha's guidance than under my attachment. Yeah. So if you're really attached to some people, offer them to the Buddha. Let the Buddha guide them instead of keeping our sticky hands on them, trying to manipulate them to become what I want them to become. Yeah. Or the different things you have, you know, in your heart, give them to the Buddha in the mandala offering. And then when you use them, be aware, these are not mine. They're, they belong to the three jewels. And I'm using them on loan And if I'm borrowing the things of the three jewels, I need to take good care of them. I need to use them with a good motivation. Yeah, I need to, you know, use them to benefit sentient beings, not just for my own uh, enjoyment and so on. Okay? So if you really have the intention to give, and then you imagine giving, then afterwards, you know, it really changes how you use the things in your environment. And then if somebody comes along and takes something, you know, you don't go, that's mine, give it back, that's mine. You know, you say, well, it, you know, it belongs to the Buddha. And not, I have no, you know, I, I have no say-so. I, there's no reason for me to be attached to it if it disappears. Which is, which is a very helpful attitude for, to have when things go missing. Yeah, like one of my socks in the laundry. <laughs> Not to mention my Zen, which has never been found. Um, <laughs> you know, I, you, just, you just let go. Okay. So, okay, next question. 
Is it best to purify daily? Yes. <laughs> Seems we have an endless number of seeds to purify. Agree. And each day we, it's not like we have continually virtuous minds every day. Do we? Anybody have a continually virtuous mind every day? You know, I know, I mean, all sorts of afflictive mental states come up. So we have to purify what we've done in the day as well as work on the, the backlog. Okay? So it's kind of like when your email is overflowing, you have to answer the urgent ones that, from, that arrived today and then start with the ones that have been sitting there for four years. <laughs> okay? Okay. If you realize uh, I need to get my act together before it's too late and feel drawn all over the place in a desire to find purification, how would you recommend organizing your life's priorities? This is another really important thing. We have to have priorities. So if your priority is to get your act together, and within getting your act together, purifying things that happened in the past and making new reasons, you know, as part of the purification process, we make the determination not to do it again in some form, okay? And so if that is a priority to us, then we do purification regularly, okay? We do it daily as part of our daily practice, and we take the time to do uh, purification retreats. So, for example, the Vajrasattva retreat, um, prostrations to the 35 Buddhas, okay? So you really engage in, uh, you know, those, those two are two of the most prominent purification practices. There's many others, but those are the ones people usually start with. And you really uh, work on them and work on the four opponent powers, you know, uh, uh, really being honest with ourselves about things we regret, and then making a determination about how we want to be in the in the future. So this again is the same thing of deciding what kind of person we want to be, and then purifying the things in the past where we weren't the kind of person we want to be, or when in the past when we wanted to be a different kind of person and we succeeded in being that kind of person, but we don't want to be that kind of person anymore. Okay, purifying those things and then, you know, figuring out how we want to go forward so we don't uh, fall in the same traps. Okay, so isn't killing animals logical in the sense that human beings couldn't have evolved or survived as a species without eating animals. We are only able to be vegetarian because of the fairly recent development of agricultural practices. So isn't killing animals logical? I don't think that it's something you can prove with logic. Yeah, I don't think you could give a uh, 
you know, the, the hidden syllogism in this is uh, killing animals is necessary and okay because humans, human beings need to eat animals in order to survive until recently, you know. But I don't think that holds. Yeah, because all along, uh, human beings could eat other things. They didn't have to eat meat, you know. Meat was maybe easier, you know. They preferred hunting rather than to gathering and farming and planting. But that, you know, that doesn't mean that it's logical or good. Also, kind of what's underlying the question, I think, is an assumption that we tend to have in our culture, an assumption that we have that if it supports evolution, it must be virtuous. Okay? In other words, if it supports human beings being able to stay alive and develop, and da, 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 if it supports any kind of uh, thing that helps evolution, it must be virtuous. There's no pervasion there that if it supports evolution, it's a virtuous action. Yeah, there's there's no pervasion because, uh, well, like killing, you know, I, even if it did support evolution, it's still non-virtuous. Okay. And, uh, you know, many, many other kinds of things, yeah, like that, that might be good evolutionary, evolutionarily, whatever it is, but it doesn't make, mean they're virtuous. So we have to, to differentiate those things, okay? We can't say everything that enables me to stay alive is virtuous, because then that, you know, then I could go around killing and just say, well, you know, everything is endangering me and my wealth, my health, and that's much more important than this other living being's life. So taking their life is virtuous because it supports my well-being, my evolution, my getting my genes into the gene pool. Yeah. And therefore, stealing is also okay because that supports my life and my, my genes getting in the gene pool. Yeah. And sleeping around with many people is also okay. Great way to get your genes, you know, advanced. Then, you know, okay, so we, we have to... Yeah. So then the question may come, but... It's not fair <laughs> that, for example, you know, if you're a tiger, that you have to kill in order to eat. You know, it's not fair that the tiger, that that living being is born in a body where they are, they have to create non-virtue in order to stay alive. It's not fair. Okay? That's where our mind goes, isn't it? It becomes an instance of being fair or not fair. It has nothing to do with fair or not fair because 
all this happened, it was it didn't happen because there was somebody deciding it and making it, and that person had a biased mind. Okay. If you believe in a divine creator, yes, then it's unfair because the creator could have done it differently. Yeah, and had the intention to harm these beings by giving them a body where they had to kill. But we don't believe in a creator or a manager of the universe. This happened completely by karma. And this is part of the tragedy of samsara is that by we are born into situations where it's very difficult to create virtue. Yeah. Why are we born in situations where it's difficult to create virtue? Because we were involved in a lot of non-virtue in previous lives and The law of karma is when you create non-virtue, you get born in difficult situations. So it's not a matter of fairness. It's a matter of cause and result. Yeah, And that's the thing as Dharma practitioners, we talked about this recently, we're swimming upstream. Yeah, we're not floating downstream. On, on a raft. We are swimming upstream. Okay? And, and so it's going to take a different kind of energy and a different way of doing things. Yeah. And when we look, part, part of uh, the meditation on the precious human life is seeing how fortunate we are to have the rebirth that we have, where, yes, of course, we have some impediments to creating virtue, but compared to most other living beings, we have an extraordinary situation in which we can create virtue. Yeah. So in comparison to other living beings, you know, what is there for us to complain about? On the other hand, we should never get proud of, well, I have a perfect human rebirth, so I'm higher than you, you know, because as soon as you think like that, it shows that you're lower than somebody else because arrogance is an affliction. Okay. Okay. It seems that to be human is to cause harm to other beings every day. Is it possible to be a human and not cause harm in some way every single day? Do realized beings in human form create less harm? They better, otherwise what's the point of being a realized being? Yeah, yeah, of course, if you have realizations, you're going to create less harm. Um, Yes, as, as... as a human beings, so, so we have to say here, is as human beings, is just being a human being the thing that makes us create non-virtue? Or is it being a human being with afflictions that makes us create non-virtue? Yeah. It's more being a human being with afflictions that then when we're in a difficult state, 
uh, situation, then we often act out of the afflictions, out of self-centered thought, to do what is best for us. Okay? And that's why we're practicing the Dharma, to reverse that tendency. Okay? To try and go in the other direction so that we can be in a difficult situation and hold to what we know is true, hold to know what, with what, hold to what we know is right, ethically right. Okay? So this, you know, if we practice Dharma, then we can slowly go from, you know, just causing harm, ad, you know, everything, you know, all over the place to uh, causing less and less and less harm and actually being able to benefit. Yeah, so it's a, it's a thing of, you know, rehabituating our mind, you know, deciding what is virtuous, what is not, what kind of human being do I want to be, and then slowly going in that direction. Okay. So these were the questions from last week. Now we can start the teaching today. (laughs) So we're in the fourth chapter. We were just finishing verse uh, 21. So here we're in a section here, um, you know, talking about the disadvantages of non-virtue and the results that we experience from it, and why uh, it's appropriate to to strive to abandon all this previously created non-virtue. Okay? Why? Because if even by the transgression of one instant, an eon may be spent in the deepest hell, Remember, and that's because a small action can bring a big result. It festers in your mind and, uh, yeah, it festers in your mind and produces something big. Then because of the transgressions I have gathered since beginningless time, what need to mention my not going to a happy realm? Okay, so this verse counteracts the mind that says, well, I've done a hundred thousand uh, Vajrasattva mantras, so I've purified everything. What, what, you know? Uh, I don't need to do any more purification. Purification is not so important. I've done my hundred thousand prostrations. That's done. I purified everything. No, okay, <laughs> that that hasn't happened. We've made a huge step in purification. Yeah. And it doesn't, the idea isn't that you purify absolutely everything and only then can you gain realizations. It's as you purify, your mind opens to the Dharma, you understand more, and that understanding, you know, helps you go forward on the path. And going forward on the path, really makes you want to purify more because you know you're going in a good direction. So you do more purification, and then that helps you to go forward and gain more understanding. So those two things go together very much. 
Okay, so this, this verse 21 is in case you get complacent. I've done my 100,000. You know, I was distracted through most of them, but it doesn't matter. I still, you know, counted. And, uh, yeah, don't need to really emphasize purification much. I'm a pretty good person anyway. That was my big shock when I first met the Dharma. I thought I was such a wonderful person. Yeah. And then I found out that I was actually selfish. Yeah. Boy. It's another thing my mother used to say to me. Don't be selfish. I'm not selfish. She was right. Yeah. So that was a big... big shock for me. And I have anger. That was a big shock, too. Well, I knew I had anger. I was angry at, you know, politicians and this this kind of thing, you know. But I was a nice, sweet person. Yeah, and then I found out, actually, I was quite angry inside. Um, Okay, verse 22. Yet having experienced merely that rebirth in hell, I shall still not be liberated, for while it is being experienced, other wrongdoing will be extensively produced. So this is this thing that once you get born in another uh, samsaric rebirth, okay, you're consuming the karma that, you know, was responsible for that rebirth, and if it's in the lower realms, you're consuming, you know, that that negativity that caused that lower rebirth. But in that new rebirth you have, you're again in a situation that is disadvantageous and you cr- again create more negative karma. Okay, so this is what I was saying, the tragedy of samsara, that you're more born into situations where... You know, especially in the lower realm, where uh, because the situation is so bad, our afflictions just, they go crazy. Yeah, in trying to avoid the pain uh, of that situation. So, I mean, that happens even in the human realm, we can see. Yeah, people in difficult situations create a lot of non-virtue. And then the real big tragedy is the people who are in good situations who create non-virtue. Yeah, because they want to be in better situations or because they have no idea of past and future lives and they're just involved for the happiness of this life. Yeah. Okay. So, 23. If so, if when having found the freedom such as this in our pre- perfect, uh, in our precious human life, the eight freedoms, yeah. So, if having found these freedoms, I do not attune myself to what is wholesome, there could be no greater deception and there could be no greater folly. Okay? So, in previous lives, we worked so hard to 
attain, you know, to create virtue, to have a precious human life now, and having gotten this incredible opportunity, if now we um, just fritter it away, we don't attune ourselves to what is virtue, virtuous, but we just, you know, kind of go along and, you know, my tummy's filled, my rice bowl is full, that's all that matters, I feel good, uh, you know, then we're really deceiving ourselves. So in it, to make a modern example, it would be like you're a kid in a toy store and somebody gave you their credit card and you could buy anything you wanted and as many toys as you wanted in the toy store. But instead, you turn around and you walk out. Okay? Even though you have somebody else's credit card and they'll pay for it. You know? So it's kind of like that. You have this great opportunity and then you don't take advantage of it. And we see this all the time. It's so easy to see it in other people. Yeah. It's extremely difficult to see it in ourselves. It's so easy with other people. You know, we can look around and they have such good conditions, but look at how they're acting. Why are they so angry? Why are they so greedy? Why are they, this is, what they're doing is so harmful, you know? Don't they understand that they're creating the cause for their own, you know, bad rebirths, you know? Or even if it's not like on that level, it's, you know, they have a, they, they're born in a really good life and they're, they become an alcoholic or a drug addict. Yeah? Why? They have such a, a good opportunity. Why, why are they acting like that? Okay? So it's very easy to see with other, other people, isn't it? When they don't make proper use of their opportunities. It's not so easy to see when we don't. Yeah, it's not so easy. So don't get into telling yourself you're bad because you don't use every opportunity to the hundred and eighth percent. Okay, because if you start telling yourself you're bad for wasting this opportunity, then you're going to spend your time and energy in ruminating about how bad you are, and you're not going to have any time and energy to do anything virtuous. Yeah. So don't sit there and tell yourself how lousy you are and how unworthy you are. Okay? But see the opportunity you have, and then make use of it. And we may not be able, like I was saying, able before to do everything right away perfectly, but we start going in that direction, and that's good enough. Yeah, because you don't get to the end before you go through the beginning and the middle. Okay? We all want to be at the end without going through the beginning and the middle, and it's impossible. Okay? (laughs) Isn't it? Don't we all want to wake up tomorrow and be Buddhist and, okay, 
then it's all done. Now I can, His Holiness says that, you know. Oh, I want to become a Buddha. Then I can take a nice long sleep, you know. Really rest and relax. Yeah, so we all want to, you know, we think that's what Buddhahood is. And, uh, you know, we want to get there uh, the quick, cheap, and easy way. Yeah, so we've got it done, and it's not on our list anymore. Whew, one last thing on my list to do. Um, yeah, <laughs> to, to really, uh, you know, uh, look, look at our opportunity and feel joy. Feel joy at the opportunity, you know, that we can use it so well. And sometimes we need to nudge ourselves and sometimes we need to discipline ourselves, you know, to, to get ourselves to do something. I had a friend who, um, she told me it was often hard for her in the, in the morning to go sit, you know, she couldn't seem to get herself to the cushion. So she would talk to herself as if she were talking to one of her kids. And I, oh, sweetheart, I know you feel a little tired. You don't want to go on the cushion this morning. But it's, you know, if you go on the cushion, you'll feel better later and it's good for you. So we're going to do it. Come on. And that's how she talked to herself to get herself on the cushion every morning. Okay? Like you're talking to a little kid. Because sometimes when we're under the influence of our afflictions, we are like little kids. Aren't we? Yeah. And inside, you know, the kid's going, I don't want to. Oh, I want to have a cup of tea and sit and read a, a good boy. I don't want to go sit on the cushion. As if sitting on the cushion were going to cause you such incredible pain. Yeah. I was thinking about that actually this morning, how the mind avoids certain meditations, yeah? And, and saying, why does my mind avoid, so, so, you know, that meditation? You know, I don't, it's fine for me to write about it. It's fine for me to teach about it. But doing that meditation, that's another story, okay? And so I was thinking, it's like, you know, the mind thinks that if I do that meditation, I'm going to suffer. Okay? Now, when you're doing the meditation, you're just sitting there. What is suffering about just sitting there? There's no physical suffering involved. Although I can say there's physical suffering if I have to sit cross-legged because I just had a hip replacement and I can't do it and it hurts. But aside from that, because I can sit in a chair, there is, you know, what is painful about, you know, why do we want to avoid certain meditations or avoid getting ourselves to the cushion? What is it? Yeah. It's not like there's, yeah, there's no physical pain. I mean, okay, your knees hurt, you move your position. But 
you know, and it's not like your mind hurts when you do a meditation. But it's like, I kind of know that's true, but I don't want to really acknowledge it, because if I do, then I have to change. Well, what's so difficult about changing? Isn't that what we signed up to do? I mean, we didn't come and take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha so that we could remain the same as we were before. That wasn't the motivation, isn't it? We come to the Dharma because we want to change. Uh So then, you know, it's time to change, and then my mind goes, but, 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 but. Yeah? You know that too? It's interesting, isn't it? And yet, where's the pain? Why are we so afraid? Yeah? What is painful about changing? Yeah, especially because we're changing to something good. If we were changing to something bad, that would be really painful, yeah. But if you're changing to something that is creating the more causes for your own happiness and for the happiness of others, why do we resist that? It's so interesting, this, this mind we have. It's so inconsistent. Because it's one, our deepest wish, any sentient being, deepest wish is for happiness and to avoid suffering. And yet when it comes to creating happiness and avoiding suffering, we think that's suffering. (laughs) Yeah? Very interesting. I don't know. Think about that. I've been thinking about this for a long time. I was like, why? Why? The mind is totally illogical. Okay, 24. We're moving ahead. (laughs) And if, having understood this, I still foolishly continue to be slothful, when the hour of death arrives, tremendous grief will rear its head. Hmm. So Shantiteva knows that we have this resistance. He's talking to himself, you know. It's like, I know I have this resistance, but if I just continue on that path, then when death arrives, um, there's going to be tremendous uh, remorse. He, He uses the word grief here. I think it should be remorse. So one thing that that uh, I know motivates me is I've known some people, you know, older people, who I can sense that there's things in their life that they have a lot of regret for or remorse. And here I'm not talking about the good kind of regret where we, you know, but just this heaviness. Um, 
Maybe they have remorse over non-virtue. They did, but they're not actually purifying the non-virtue because they're just stuck in the remorse. Yeah, or they have remorse for things in their life, you know, that started out good and then went south. And they're seeing that they had some responsibility for that. Or they're having remorse about lost opportunities. So all of this kind of thing comes uh, at the time of death. Because before the time of death, we always think death is a long way off. So I can do these things in the future. I can fix everything in the future before I die. But then we don't. Okay. And then what we have is we're left with the remorse. So it could be remorse because of holding grudges against other people, refusing to speak to other people, refusing to acknowledge that we harm them, or just refusing that both of us had some responsibility for what happened. Or remorse about having a fantastic opportunity, let's say, for Dharma practice, and choosing something else instead. Or, you know, there could be lots of kind of remorse. But you see this. I mean, do you know what I mean sometimes? People who are older, there's just something very heavy about their energy. Um, yeah, maybe it's remorse because they, they lost their uh, conscientiousness. They lost their integrity. You know, some of these people who are doing what I was talking about in the political party, I wonder, how do they go to, how do they go to sleep at night? Yeah, if you're spreading conspiracy theories, and you know that that's what they are, and you know you're doing it just for your own advancement, and you know that you're brown-nosing up to somebody who has power, how do you live with yourself? Yeah. They must have to fall asleep really quickly, because otherwise, you know... If you start thinking about that when you're alone, it, it can be overwhelming. So, um, yeah, it's very, very sad. So we don't want to die like that, do we? Yeah. We want to die like we're going on a picnic. That's how they, the highly realized uh, practitioners die. Of course, I don't think it's really like going on a picnic. It's supposed to mean that you feel delight. You know, there's no sense of fear. There's no sense of remorse or regret. Okay. Yeah, I I saw somebody die that way. That was good. Um, Yeah, but if we don't, and we just kind of fritter our, our time away, then it's, it's our loss, isn't it? 
And, and it's very difficult to get this kind of rebirth again. Yeah. Because it's difficult to create the cause. Okay, so we did three verses. <laughs> Any questions? So in regards to this, why we can't, like, do what makes us happy... I mean, what part does the self-grasping ignorance that defines itself as this solid, defensible entity influence when we finally get an insight about challenging that? Is I mean, I don't want to anthropomorphize self-grasping ignorance as some sort of entity in me that's causing all sorts of havoc, but there seems to be something about that erroneous view that imparts a sense of annihilation and fear when we get into understanding what our biggest obstacle is. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I mean, I think that might be a piece of this puzzle, but I'm the, the self-grasping ignorance is what we're, is the... Oh, yeah. Because the self-grasping ignorance, that and the self-centered thought, are the two things that are going to lose out by our practicing the Dharma. And... They've been with us for a long time, and they're not going to roll over and say, yeah, go ahead and destroy me. Yeah. I mean, that grasping at, at, at an inherently existent person who's in control, who can do this and that, just this real person, that's a, you know. Not going to roll over. Not going to no. go down without a fight. No, not at all. I mean, it's so habituated. If you look at it like that, it's, it's yeah. just so deeply habituated that uh, it's going to be hard to. We have to chip away at it gradually. So we didn't do very many verses, but I hope you have something to think about. Yes. When you were talking about uh, the thing about killing animals, it made mm -hmm. me think first of um, Albert Schweitzer, who always had this one of his mottos was reverence for life and like how the Native Americans do. But uh -huh. I was thinking in Buddhism, I remember Dashan Rinpoche talking about, and I think we've talked about this here, that there is this acknowledgement of harm. So we maybe try to reduce that and try to maybe, um, they talk sometimes about the size of the animals that you might eat. Oh, and yeah. Things like that. So there is this recognition uh -huh. of, of uh that there is harm. I remember he used to tell people that you're actually harming even when you grow vegetables. Mm -hmm. There's there's actually harm that happens to stuff in the ground, and, you yeah. know, like creatures in the ground or whatever. So I think it was like a, an acceptance, but a minim minimizing. Yeah. For ordinary beings. I right. Mean, I think there's a place where you probably don't need to eat. <laughs> yeah. You don't have that kind of Yeah, body. I mean, you accept the situation and you try and minimize the damage and the harm. And you you don't have the intention to kill. Okay? Which is different than I have the intention to kill and that's why I'm doing that. Or I like the taste of meat and so you know. Okay? Right. Yeah. So you minimize it by, by taking away the different branches of the karma. By... Um, Reducing the strength of the intention by doing some purification, by saving life. Yeah. 
Okay.